Hope is one of the strongest forces on earth. Because of this, hope is the difference between an adventure and an ordeal. Hope can bring about marvelous and unbelievable results. Great achievements are made by people who have dreams and are stirred to action by the hope that they can fulfill those dreams. They are living an adventure. Hopeless people, however, tend to live life as an ordeal. Hopeless people are pretty sure that nothing is ever better than it is right now, that nothing will ever change, and so there's no point in looking to the future for anything. Those who have given in to hopelessness have decided that this is the way life is. It's the best it will ever be. So why bother to change? They don't ever try to fix anything. They don't ever try to work on anything because nothing is ever going to get any better. And their life then becomes an ordeal. Now, we can become hopeless in virtually any area of our lives. We can become hopeless on our jobs. We can become hopeless with our finances. We can become hopeless in our relationships. We can become hopeless in our marriage. We can become hopeless in sin. We can even become hopeless in our relationship and our service to Jesus. And when our lives are an ordeal, it's because we have lost hope. When our service and our relationship to Jesus is an ordeal, it's because we have lost hope. Many people today seem to be living life of a hopeless ordeal rather than a life of hope-filled adventure. This is true even for many Christians. For those that have succumbed to this, their life, their relationship and service to Jesus, it is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week ordeal. It begins the moment that they wake up and it does not end until they go back to sleep. Now, if your life is an ordeal, instead of an adventure, I have good news. There is more. If you have resigned yourself to a life of hopelessness, I have good news. There is more. Today, we're going to see that you and I, we can and we should have hope. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. It's page 868 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Romans 15 and 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. title of the message today is I Can Have Hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, we live in desperate need of hope. Father, it is so disturbingly easy to lose hope and let life become an ordeal. It's so easy to forget your greatness and your power, and that you are indeed a God of hope. Father, today as we look at what your word has to say, let us abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let your Holy Spirit take your word and make it living and active in our lives. Father, he would convict us where we need convicting, that he would strengthen us where we need strengthening. That He would encourage us where we need encouraging. That He would help us where we need the help. 
that God, he would take your word and do whatever is needed in our lives so that we can abound with hope, that we can live lives that are hope filled adventures instead of hopeless ordeals. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and let him give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to speak your words in your ways for your glory. Help us, God, to take your word to heart, to apply it to our lives. And let us leave here so, so filled with hope that people wonder what's going on with us. And they ask us about the hope within. And we ask all of this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Paul refers to God as the God of hope. That fills us with joy and peace. And he says that, that we can and we should abound with hope in our lives. Now that verse all by itself is pretty amazing. What makes it more amazing is given the, the, just the overall context of Paul's life and of the early church. The early church, the, the church in Acts, the church at the time of Romans, their life wasn't particularly easy. It was difficult for them to follow Jesus. It was costly for them to follow Jesus. They often suffered terribly. They often died for their faith. They often had personality problems and relational issues. And they suffered hunger and famine and all of these things simply because of their, their faith and their devotion to Jesus. And yet when you read the book of Acts, you don't read about a group of people who are going through an ordeal. You, you read about people that when they're beaten for preaching about Jesus, they leave rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. You find a people that when one of their own is imprisoned, that rather than, than running and hiding, they gather and they pray for God to deliver them. That when they're arrested for, for setting someone free and they're beaten almost to death and they're put in a prison at night, rather than setting and feeling sorry for themselves, they're singing praises to God and praying to Him. You see a people that when they are delivered from prison and their jailer is about to kill himself, Rather than letting him, they call on him not to harm himself because Jesus can save him. Their lives were an adventure and not an ordeal, despite the fact their lives were very, very hard. And this is because they had hope. It's because they had the hope described in verse 13 of Romans chapter 15. And so the main truth I want us to understand today is that hope makes life an adventure instead of an ordeal. This doesn't free us from troubles and hardships. It doesn't free us from difficulties and issues. But hope can make it an adventure instead of an ordeal, despite whatever we go through in our lives. Three reasons this verse gives us. Why hope makes life an adventure instead of an ordeal. The first is hope anticipates what God can do. 
Right. God may the God of hope. God is a God of hope, right? not a God of hopelessness, not a God of despair, but a God of hope. One of my commentaries explained that the idea of a God of hope is that God is the author of our hope, that God is the foundation of our hope, that God is the builder of our hope, and that when our hope is completed and it's all fulfilled, it'll be God that is the finisher of that hope. Right? It has been long said that there are no hopeless situations, just people that have given up hope. And this is true because we serve a God of hope. But what is hope? What is hope as it's used in the Bible? Because typically when, when we think about hope, we think about some sort of far-fetched dream that we would really like to come to pass. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not referring to some sort of far-fetched thing that we would think was really cool if it came to pass. Instead, hope is a, a well-grounded, well-founded assurance that God will do what He has said He will do. Right? It is a well-grounded, well-founded assurance that God will do everything He has said He will do. Hope carries with it the idea of anticipation. When I'm hopeful and I have a biblical hope, I expect that God is going to do something. Now, doesn't it sound kind of presumptuous, though, to say we expect God to do something? It feels that way to me sometimes when I begin to feel hope and to, to declare the hope that I have. Who am I to tell God what, what He should do? Who am I to expect God to do anything? And I think hope, it could be presumptuous if we have the wrong idea about it. But if I expect God to do something because I want Him to, or if I expect God to do something because I deserve it, well, good luck with that. Tell me how that works out for you. Because that is presumption. However, if I expect God to do something because God has said He would do it. If I expect God to do something because there is a promise that God has given where God has said, Thus and thus I will do. That is not presumption. That is hope. When we have a promise from God, a word from the Lord. We can have a legitimate and a righteous expectation that God is going to do something. Right? Hope, it is built on the character and the nature of God. Right? It always has to start there. Because when we talk about hope, we're believing that God is who the Bible says that He is. You know, the Bible has, has revealed to us who God is and what God is like. And so, if God has said it, then it's within His character and it's within His nature to do something that He has said He would do. So, it, it begins there. I believe what the Bible says about God. I believe that God is who the Bible says that He is. And I believe that God can do what the Bible says He can do. 
And not only that, but I also believe that God will do what the Bible says he can and will do. See, all of that is the, the foundation of our hope. Right? We have to believe that God is who the Bible says he is. We have to believe that he's able to do what the Bible says he can do. But we also have to believe that he, he will do the things that he says he will do. That character, that nature of God is really the foundation to anything. What we believe about God, that will determine the kind of hope that we have. And that will begin to be determined by how we live our lives. I've often said, said it this way. If, if I were to tell you that there's a million dollars in a sack behind the pulpit and the first person up there gets it, how you responded to that declaration for me would tell me whether or not you believe me. Right? If you sat and laughed, then you don't believe me. You either don't believe in my character, that, that I would give you that kind of money. Or you don't believe in my power that I can give you that kind of money. But you don't believe me, and so you don't move. On the other hand, if you stepped on little kids to grab the money, you would believe the words that I said. Your actions would dictate, would, would demonstrate your faith. And that's how it is with God. When we believe that God is who Scripture says He is, and we believe that God can do what Scripture says He can do. And we believe that God will do what Scripture says He will do. The natural response is that we take God's Word and we say, this is what God has said, this is what I'm going to build my life on. This is what God has said, and this is true regardless of my circumstances. This is what God has said, and so this is going to happen at some point. Now, the problem is God is still God and he's not subservient to us in any way. And because God is God, he doesn't generally do things the way that that we want them to do, want him to do it. Right? for me, I want to pray and I want God to do it right that second. I don't want to wait. I don't want my patience to be developed. I don't want to have to have a perseverant faith. I just want to say, God, save this person and they're saved. God, heal this person and they're healed. God, change this about me and it's changed. But God doesn't tend to do it that way. God often gives promises and then waits to see how we'll react if he doesn't do it when and how we think he should. Let me show you an example of this. Turn back to Romans 4. Romans 4 Verse 17 through 21 tells us the story of Abraham. Now, you're familiar with Abraham. God called Abraham to leave his home to go into a land that God would show him. And as a part of this calling that Abraham surrendered to, God gave Abraham a promise. I'm going to give you a child. In fact, your descendants will be as many the sands by the seashore, the stars in the sky. Now, this was huge, right? And it's huge because at the time that God called Abraham and Sarah, Abraham was 75 years old. Sarah was, a, was around that same age. And so they're, they're really, they're long beyond normal childbearing age. Not only that, but, but they have lived all of their time together Unable to have children. Right? So not only are they physically 
too old to have kids. They are also, there's something in one of their wiring that doesn't work right, so they can't have kids. So it is physically, humanly, it is impossible for them to have children. And yet God says, I'm going to give you a kid. I'm going to give you a descendant and I'm going to, there's going to be so many that you can't number them. And Abraham, he, he believed God. But Abraham and Sarah didn't believe God and, and set off on their journey. And nine months later, little Isaac was born. Abraham and Sarah believed God and set off on their journey. And year after year after year after year went by. Who remembers how many years they had to wait? 25 years. 25 years. Can you imagine waiting 25 years? I mean, I get upset if I have to wait 40 minutes on the pizza to arrive. 25 years for something that you know that they knew God had said. I mean, this wasn't even like they read the Bible. And they had like, you know, maybe I'm misunderstanding it. God spoke, Abraham, I'm going to give you a kid. They had an actual word, voice of God speaking. And God repeatedly would come back and say, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to. And they had to wait 25 years. But notice how this passage tells us they responded. It says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed, God. Now, notice what it says about God, who who gives life to the dead and calls those things that do not exist as though they did. Right. Abraham believed God can bring the dead back to life and God can speak things that don't exist into existence. So I'm going to trust God. And so Abraham Contrary to hope, I love that phrase, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, right? I mean, if somebody had went to Abraham and said, where's your children? Oh, we're going to have some. The people would have said, you're crazy. No way that's happening to you. It was it was contrary to hope. It, It didn't make sense physically, humanly, naturally. It wasn't possible for them to have kids, but... But they served a God who could bring the dead to life. But they served a God who called things that didn't exist as though they did. And so, they believed. And what was the end result of waiting 25 years? So that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he didn't consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that he who had promised was also able to perform. He believed the character and the nature of God. God could do what he had said he would do. God would do What he said he would do. And so for 25 years, Abraham persevered in hope. Now, of course, we know the story. Abraham wasn't perfect. He's not the story of doing everything right. But he always had hope as he waited for 25 years. 
He anticipated. He looked forward. He expected that God would at some point visit he and Sarah and they would have a child. You and I, if God has said it, we can expect that he'll do it. We can anticipate what God can do in us and through us and for us. Now, does that mean he's going to do it right now? No. Does that mean he's going to do it next week? No. We may have to wait 25 years like Abraham did. But if we believe the character and the nature of God, he is who the scripture says he is. He can and he will do what he has said he can and will do. Then no matter how long it goes and no matter how long we have to wait, there will always be a sense of anticipation. God can do what he has said he would do. God will do at some point. All the things that God has said He would do. And when we have this kind of hope that anticipates what God can and will do, then it doesn't matter what's going on. We will have an adventure instead of an ordeal. right? We won't be giving up into hopelessness. We won't be resigning ourselves to that this is the all that there will be. We'll know that there's more because God has promised that there is more. And that God is faithful. To what he promised and he will perform and do all the things that he said. And this is true. Even if what we're hoping in is contrary to the world's hope, even if what we're hoping in is contrary to what anything people around us say can happen. Our hope is built on the character, the nature of God. And when I believe that God is who he says he is and he can do what he says he will do then I will have an anticipatory hope no matter what's going on in my life. And that makes life an adventure instead of an ordeal. Secondly, hope changes my life. Paul said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. All joy and peace in believing. You know, when I believe the character and the nature of God, and it gives me a hope that anticipates what God can do in my life, in me, through me, and for me. I mean, that just changes who I am and how I am. There's just no way it can't. There's no way, when we take what God says at His Word, and we say, that's what He has said, and that's what He's going to do, and I don't know when He's going to do it, but He's going to. That can't help but change us. And Paul said that it changes us by giving us joy, right? Now, joy is huge. Joy in the Christian life is transformative. Joy, joy takes us beyond the, the have-tos and the need-tos and the ought-tos of the Christian life. Now, you know what that is, right? We, you know, we ought to go to church. And I guess I need to read my Bible. Have to pray. But for many people whose relationship with Jesus is an ordeal, that's, that's their service to Christ. It's all built upon ought-tos and have-tos and need-tos. But joy shifts things. Joy makes it a get-to, a want-to, a love-to. Let me ask you, when was the, the last time when it was time to read your Bible or time to pray, or, or time to come to church, you were, you were excited about it. 
You were looking forward to it. You, you were loving what was about to happen because you were going to get to connect with God in that way. Listen, man, if there's not a, a love to, a get to, a want to about these areas, there's something wrong. That there's something that's not right. And, and I contend that what's not right is there's no joy. And there's no joy because there's no hope. Why read my Bible if it's not going to make any difference in my life? Why pray if God's not going to do anything in response to my prayer? Why go to church if it doesn't make a difference in my life? I have no hope that anything is going to change or get better or God is going to do anything that saps my joy and I ought to, have to, need to do everything that there is to be done in my relationship with Jesus. But when we have hope, there is joy. And that hope makes me want to read my Bible and pray and come to church. That hope makes me love to read my Bible and pray and come to church. That love or that joy makes me want to read my Bible and pray and come to church. Now, we often have a hard time with joy because we live in a world that's hard, right? Bad things happen and life gets difficult. And the Bible talks about rejoicing in the Lord always. How do I rejoice in the Lord always when life is hard? How do I rejoice in the Lord always when bad things happen and sometimes they happen to me? It's because we have a misunderstanding of joy. Joy isn't freedom from troubles and hardships and trials. Joy is something that we can have even in the midst of troubles and hardships and trials. And that sounds crazy. But in Scripture, we find joy... And hardships sticking together a lot of times. Second Corinthians, Paul gives a very personal description of things that have happened to him in his life. Sufferings that he's endured, beatings that he's taken. And if we had time, I would look at all of them so we could see all that's gone on. But suffice to say, Paul's life was hard as a follower of Jesus. Beatings and hunger and imprisonments and betrayal all followed Paul everywhere that he went. And despite all the things that had happened to Paul, he wrote these words right here. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So, I love that verse. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know, we talk about joy. It's not meant to make us feel guilty because we feel sorrow over the bad things that happen in our lives or the lives of people that we love. Joy doesn't mean the absence of sorrow, even. Right? Paul knew sorrow for the hardships he endured, for the people that rejected Christ. But despite the sorrow that he felt, he still had joy. And he, because his joy, it wasn't based upon the stuff that the world offered. His joy was based upon who God was and what God had said. And so, even in the midst of great trials, Paul had Joy. I mean, Paul, Paul's the guy that wrote in Philippians that he doesn't know. He, he just doesn't know what he would choose. He's torn between two things. But he knows that they might kill him in prison. And he knows that they might let him go. And he said he didn't know if he were to, if they were to give him the choice, he wasn't even sure what he would choose. Because to depart and to go to be with Jesus was far better but to carry on and go and help them grow closer to Jesus, that was very needed. Sorrowful, 
yet always rejoicing. There was hope. What was the worst thing they could do? Send him to be with Jesus. Wow. He wins. Hope. Or they could let him go and he could serve Jesus and there would be fruit from that. People would come to know Jesus. They would be helped in living for Jesus. Hope. Paul had hope regardless of the situation. And that hope gave him joy no matter what. And that's what we can have. That's what we're supposed to have. We're not meant to be downcast and downtrodden and defeated. We're not meant to be hopeless and joyless and perpetually angry and unhappy people. We're meant to be different. A hope-filled joy changes everything about who we are and how we are. And it's there no matter how bad the situation is. If I believe God is who He says He is, then I can have joy no matter what. But He also talked about peace. Now, peace, again, like joy, isn't the absence of problems. Peace is confidence that God is in control even in the midst of great hardships. Peace is Jesus sleeping on the boat in the middle of a storm. Peace is the apostles singing and praising God at midnight after a beating. Peace. Now, the world offers us peace, but the world's peace isn't any good, not really. Because the world offers us a lot of things as the source of our peace, right? Financial security. If I have enough money, I can have peace. There's, there's peace through the political process. My president, my party's in charge. I have peace. Right? There's world peace. If the world, is not un, if the world isn't scary and there's not people killing each other all over the place, I can, I can have a peace-filled life. If, if my life is generally just the way I think it ought to be, I'm, I'm well, my family's well, everything is going great in my life, I can have peace. Now, the problem with those things as a source of peace is they can all be lost at a moment's notice. I mean, if your peace is in your political party being in charge, there's always another election coming. And I've seen a lot of comments about 2018. There's another election. We're about to hit another political season. Woo! Exciting, right? And what happens? It is entirely possible that the whole power in the House... The Senate is going to change because elections change things. And so if your peace is built upon your party being in charge, then if you're a Democrat, you got little peace right now. But that may change in next year. If you're a Republican, you've got lots of peace right now, but that may change next year. Financial security. Things happen. All kinds of stuff can happen. We could bottom could drop out of the markets tomorrow. You lose your job. Anything could happen. So it's always a, a fear. Our person, the world at peace. I don't think anybody looks for peace in that because the world is never anything but scary and violent and destructive. And then just our lives. I mean, we could get a call when we get home. Something bad has happened to someone in our family. We could have a wreck on the way home. I mean... A test result could come back badly tomorrow. Any number of things could happen and suck away our peace. But if we're looking to God, if our peace is built upon the character and the nature of God, that He is who He says He is, 
then I can have peace no matter what, because God has promised to give me peace. I love this verse. Look at this. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Not the Lord might or the Lord should, but the Lord will. Now, that's a promise. God has promised that he will give us peace. So no matter what the election holds, no matter what the economy holds, no matter what the war holds, no matter what our health holds, you and I can be at peace. We, we should be because the Lord has promised that he will give us his peace. That's a hopeful thought, isn't it? I can have great hope and great peace no matter what it is that's going on in my life or in the world around me because God has promised that He would give me hope now or He would give me peace. And if, if I believe that God is who He says He is and I believe God can do what He says He will do, then I can receive that peace regardless of what's going on in my life. It's peace, it, it gives us hope. The hope, it gives us peace. It's a, I, honestly, I kind of think it's a, just a cycle. I have peace no matter what's going on. Man, that's a, that's a hopeful thing to have peace in the midst of difficulties. So my peace fuels my hope. My hope then fuels my peace. And it's just constantly, my life is different because I have hope. My hope gives me joy. My joy gives me hope. My hope gives me peace. My peace gives me hope. You think about the world that we live in. How many joyful, peaceful, hopeful people do you know? I mean, doesn't that just stand out as a different way of life? It's the way of life we, we are meant to live. All of us. As believers in Jesus Christ. We are meant to live different because the hope we have gives us joy and peace. The joy and peace gives us hope. And people then begin to see that we're different because of that. And they're attracted to it. And life is an adventure rather than an ordeal because of our hope-filled joy and peace. And then finally, hope abounds through the Holy Spirit. You know, some people have a natural disposition that makes them positive no matter what. Other people have a natural disposition that makes them negative no matter what. Some people see the cloud behind every silver lining. And we all know people who have a, a bent to being hopeful no matter what life brings. And then there are those who, no matter how good things are, they're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? Life's too good. It's too easy. Now, for those of us who may be more cynical, more negative, more struggling with being hopeful in all situations, there is hope for us in this passage. Because Paul says that we can abound with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Abound, I was looking at that, it means an overabundance, an overflow. So abounding in hope isn't having a little bit of hope. It's like pouring water in a cup and just continuing, even though the water's flowing out all over the place. 
We're not just supposed to have and meant to have a little bit of hope. But an overabundance of hope that just flows out of our lives onto the world around us. And it's the Holy Spirit that that enables us to have this. And, And I wondered, how does the Holy Spirit, what does he do in us and through us and for us that enables us to abound in hope? So I started thinking, what is it that the Holy Spirit does in us and through us and for us just on a basic level? And the Bible says that when we we trusted in Jesus after we heard the gospel. And when we believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You know, the Holy Spirit is active in all parts of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come so that we understand our need for Jesus. When we call out to Jesus to save us, the Holy Spirit, then he he makes us into a new creation that Jesus called that being born again. That is a work of the spirit. And then the Holy Spirit, he he comes to live within us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Right? The idea of a seal is kind of a marker that demonstrates we belong to someone. The Holy Spirit is a, a marker that says, I, I belong to God. The Holy Spirit in your life is God's marker saying you belong to Him. And the Holy Spirit is also given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. Now, I, I know we've talked about this before, but the idea of a guarantee, if you're familiar with the King James Version, it calls it the earnest of the inheritance. You ever bought a house and paid Earnest money, that's the same idea. It's a a down payment that you're making to say, I'm going to follow through and go ahead and buy the house. God gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment to say, everything I've, I've promised to do in you, and through you and for you, I'm going to do. And to, to make sure you understand what I'm going to do and that I'm going to keep that promise, I'm going to give you a down payment on all of the great things to come. And that down payment that God gives us is the Holy Spirit. How great must everything else be if the down payment is the Holy Spirit in our lives? And so the Holy Spirit, He then begins to, to work in us and to remind us and to, to be the guarantee until the redemption of the purchased possession. Right? That means until we go to be in glory. Until we go to be with Jesus. Right? So the Holy Spirit is the promise that God is always going to keep His promises to us. He is always going to do what He has said He would do. And as I thought about that, I was reminded of this in Philippians. That Paul was being confident of this very thing. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now... The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that God is going to keep that verse. The promise is God began a work in us on the day that we were saved. But he ain't going to give up. He's going to keep doing it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until Jesus comes back where we go to be with him. So the work that God began was making us like Jesus. That's the ultimate goal of the Christian life. We are to be like Jesus in our values, our priorities, our actions, our attitudes, our reactions, our morality, in all things. We are to be like Jesus. That is the work that God began on the day that we were saved. And the God who began that good work in us is not going to stop that work. Now, here's where this becomes a hopeful thought. 
if God only began the work and continued the work so long as we cooperated with him and we didn't push back or we didn't stray, that would still be pretty amazing. But the promise here is that God will continue the work always. He's not going to give up on us. Right? You and I, we have great capabilities to live for Jesus and to do his will because of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. We have great promises that we can be changed from glory to glory. That we can be more than conquerors through Christ. That we have no obligation to do what our sinful nature says. But we don't always do it that way. Sometimes when the Lord begins to deal with us about areas we need to change, we don't want to change those things. Sometimes when God begins to give us this freedom from sin, we, we go into it anyway. We resist the Holy Spirit's leadership and we do what we ought not to do. But we don't just do this often just once. Sometimes we just do it over and over again. So what does God do? Here's where one of the many areas I'm glad God's not like me. I would have given up on me an awful long time ago. I would have given up on me so many times, so long ago. But God doesn't do that. God has promised to continue the work. He has continued to complete it. He has promised to complete it. He will continue the work. He will complete it. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that. So every time we're reading our Bible and we see something new that we've never knew before, it's the Holy Spirit Working in our lives. And that reminds us. God is still at work in me. And he's going to do all the things that he has said. And that gives me hope. When the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin in my life. And tells me to turn from it. That that reminds me that I'm not all that I should be. But it gives me hope. Because God's dealing with me. He's not giving up on me yet. Anytime. The Holy Spirit does anything in our lives. That is just a reminder. Of all of the great things that God has promised to do. That is a reminder that there is more yet to come. There's more yet to be done. And God will do it. In us and through us and for us. And that constant reminder that God is not giving up. That God is going to continue the work. That gives me hope. Listen, if it were, if it were just up to me to have hope, I would not be a, a hopeful person. I would give up in despair and discouragement to any number of things. But every time the Holy Spirit deals with me, every time the Holy Spirit speaks to me, every time the Holy Spirit leads me, I'm reminded that He is a a guarantee that God will do everything that He has promised to do. And that always renews and restores my hope. And that hope helps life to be an adventure rather than an ordeal. So as we come to the close, let me ask you. Would you say that your life could be more accurately described as an adventure or an ordeal? Would you say that you have hope or that you're basically hopeless? I think it's safe to say that we all go through times... Where life is an ordeal. 
think we we get away from our hope, we, we forget our hope, and it starts to weigh us down and it becomes an ordeal. But it, when that happens, I think what we have to realize is we're meant to be hopeful. We're meant to have hope. That hope is for us. This, this verse, verse 13, the God of hope will fill us with all joy and peace and believing and that we will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit That's not just a nifty saying that you put on a coffee mug. That's a real thing. That is a real way of life that you and I can live. You and I, we have been saved and we know the God of hope. And He has promised to fill us with joy and peace and believing. He has given us the Holy Spirit that makes hope abound within us. This is meant to be the way we live. This is meant to be the normative Christian life. So while we go through times where life is an ordeal instead of an adventure, and we go through times where we're discouraged and not hopeful, recognize that that's not the way it's supposed to be. Recognize that's not the way it's meant to be. That's not the way it has to be. This can be true in all of our lives. Do we believe God is who He says He is, that He is a God of hope. Do we believe that God will do what He has said He will do, that He will fill us with joy and peace and believing? Do we believe that the Holy Spirit will cause hope to abound and overflow in our lives? If we do, don't settle. Don't settle. Don't settle for anything less than what the Bible says is true. You and I, we are meant to abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are meant to live lives of joy and peace through faith. We are meant to trust in the character and the nature of God and have hope regardless of what's going on in our lives. If we don't have it, we should seek it until God gives it, until God does what He has said He would do. Let's all stand.